0: Part six of the light invisible by Robert Hugh Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part six, Unto Babes. St. Bernard speaks of the words of Job that he says, abscondit lucem in manibus. That is to say, God has light hid in his hands. Thou wot well, he that has a candle, a light between his hands, he may hide it and show it at his own will so does our lord to his chosen the abbey of the holy ghost a few days after the conversation i have described my visit to the old man came to an end and my work drew me back to london but i left behind me a promise to return and spend christmas at his house he in the meantime would he promised me try to put together some other stories for me against the time that i should return there were many others he said that he had come across in his life which he hoped would interest me besides a few more personal experiences of his own and so i left him smiling and waving to me from his bedroom window that overlooked the drive for i had to go by an early train with the clean-shaven face of his old servant looking at me discreetly and gravely from the clear glass chapel window next to the priest's room where he had been setting things ready before his master was dressed it was a dark winter afternoon when i returned a week or so before christmas the coachman told me on my inquiry that his master seemed very much aged during the autumn and winter that he had scarcely left the house since the leaves had fallen except to sit for an hour or two in sunshiny weather in the sheltered angle of the wall where was the tiled platform that i have spoken of and that he was afraid he had been suffering from depression there had been days of almost complete silence at least so parker had told him when the master had sat all day turning over letters and books in old drawers i reproached myself with having troubled the old man with demands for more stories and feared that it had been in the attempt to please me that he had fallen brooding over the past perhaps dwelling too much on sorrows of which i knew nothing as we passed under the pines that tossed their sombre plumes in the wind the sun breaking through clouds in an angry glory on my right blazed on the little square-paned windows of the house on my left the chapel window on the top story seemed especially full of red light streaming from within but the flame swept across the upper story as we drove past and left the windows blank and colourless just before we turned the corner at the back of the house the old man met me in the hall and i was startled to see the change that had come to him his eyes seemed larger than ever and there was a sorrow in them that i had not seen before They had been the eyes of a stainless child, wide and smiling. Now they were the eyes of one who was under some burden almost too heavy to be borne. In the stronger light of the sitting-room, as the candle shone on his face, I saw that my impression had only been caused by a drooping of the eyelids that now hung down a little further, but it looked a tired face he welcomed me and said several charming things to me that i should be ashamed to quote but he made me feel that he was glad that i had come and so i was glad too but he said among other things this i am glad you have come now because i think i shall have something further to tell you i have had indications during this autumn that the end is coming And I think that if I have to pass through a dark valley, and I feel that I am at its entrance even now, I think that he will give me his staff as well as his rod. But I am an old man and full of fancies, so please do not question me. But I am very glad, and he took my hand and stroked it for a moment, very glad that you are here because I do not think that you will be afraid. During the following days he told me many stories bringing out the old books and letters of which the coachman had spoken, and spelling out notes through his tortoise-shell glass as he sat by the open fire in the central sitting-room with the logs crackling, and overrun with swift sparks as they rested on their bed of ashes. The door into the garden where the old drive had once been was now kept closed, and a heavy curtain hung over it. We did not go out very much together, only in the early afternoons we would walk for an hour or so, he leaning on my arm and on a stick, up and down the terraced walk that lay next the drive under the pines, as the sunset burned across the hills like a faraway judgment. Some day, perhaps, I will write out some of the stories that he told me, although not all. I have the notes by me. Here is one of them. We were walking on one of these dark winter afternoons, very slowly uphill, towards the village that the priest might get a change from the garden. The morning had been gusty and wet, with sleet showers and even a sprinkle of pure snow as the sky cleared after lunchtime, and now the weather was settling down for a frost, and the snow lay thinly here and there on the rapidly hardening ground. It is remarkable, the old man was saying to me, how, in spite of our Lord's words, people still think that faith is a matter more or less of intellect. Such a phrase as intelligent faith is, of course, strictly most incorrect. He stopped and looked at me as he said this, as if prepared for dispute. I did not disappoint him. You are very puzzling, I said. I cannot believe that you do not value intellect, surely it is a gift of god and therefore may adorn faith as any other gift may do yes he said walking on it may adorn it but it has nothing more to do with it really than jewels have to do with a beautiful woman in fact sometimes faith is far more beautiful unadorned and it is quite possible to crush a delicate and growing faith with a weight of learned arguments intended to adorn and perfect it Christian apologetics, it seems to me, are only really useful in the mouth of one who realizes their entire inadequacy. You can demonstrate nothing of God. You can, by argument, draw a number of lines that converge towards God and render His existence and His attributes probable, but you cannot reach Him along those lines. Faith depends not on intellectual but on moral conditions. Blessed are the pure in heart, said our Saviour, not blessed are the profound or acute of intellect, for they shall see God. It is certainly true of intellectual, as of all other riches, that they who possess them shall find difficulty in entering into the kingdom of God. And so I said, You think that intellectual powers are not things to covet, and that education is not a very important question after all no more than wealth he answered at least so far as you mean by education instruction in demonstrable facts or exact sciences the point of our existence here is to know god well you know for yourself how the race for wealth is ruining millions of souls today. no less surely is keen intellectual competition ruining souls mr blank for instance he said naming a well-known critic and poet was there ever a man of keener and finer intellect or of more unerring instinct in matters of literary taste well once i talked with that man most of a day on all his own subjects in fact he did nearly all the talking and i was astonished i must confess at the perfection of the training of his already brilliant powers so much i could perceive though of course i could not follow him and of course there were many delicate shades of beauty if not much more invisible to me in his talk and criticism his scale of intellectual beauty ran up out of my sight altogether but what astonished me more was the coarseness and dullness of his spiritual instinct I will not call him a child in matters of faith, because that would be high praise. But he was just an ill-bred boor. I have known many a Sussex villager of far purer and finer spiritual fibre. No, no, faith can and does exist quite apart from intellect, and to increase or develop the one often means the decrease and incoherence of the other. Seigneur, donnez-moi la foi i must confess that this was a new point of view for me and i am not sure now whether i do not still think it exaggerated and dangerous but i said nothing because it did seem to open up difficult questions and also to throw light on other difficult questions the priest turned to me again as we walked why it must be so he said if it were not clever people would have a better hope of salvation than stupid people and that is absurd as absurd as if rich people should be nearer god than poor people no no talents are distributed unevenly it is true to one ten and to another five but each has one pound all alike we had reached the top of the slope and the towering hedges had gradually fallen away so that we could now see far and wide over the country away behind us as we paused for breath we could see the misty brightened downs while in the middle distance lay tumbled wooded hills with smoke beginning to curl up here and there from the evening fires of hidden villages the sky was clear overhead but in the west where the sunset was beginning to smoulder a few heavy clouds still lingered and god sees all said the priest can you put up with another story as we walk home again i think i ought to be turning now we turned and began to retrace our steps downhill. this is not an experience of my own he said it was told me by a friend of mine in cornwall he was the squire of a little village a few miles out of truro and lived there most of the year except a few weeks in the spring when he would go abroad he was a man of great learning and taste but had the faith of a little child it was like a spring of clear water to hear him speak of god and heavenly things there was a boy in the village who was an idiot His parents were dead, and he lived alone with his old grandmother, who was a strict Calvinist, and who regarded her grandson as hopelessly damned because his faith and his expression of it were not as hers. There were evident signs, she said, that God's inscrutable decrees were against him. The local preachers there would have nothing to do with the boy, and the clergyman of the parish, after an attempt or two, had given the child up as hopeless. I think my friend told me that the clergyman had tried to teach him Old Testament history. Well, the boy was a terrible and disgusting case. I will not go into details beyond saying that the boy's head had the look of a mule about it. His mother, I think, had had a fright shortly before his birth, and the boy used to think sometimes that he was a horse or mule, and the village children used to encourage him in it and ride and drive him on the green, for he was quite harmless and so he grew up neglected and untaught spending much of his time out of doors and creeping home on all fours in the evening snorting and stamping and neighing when he was much excited and he would stable himself in a corner of the wide dark kitchen and munch grass while his grandmother sat in her high chair by the fire reading in her bible or looking over her spectacles at the poor misshapen body in the corner that held a damned soul now my friend hated to see this child it was the one thing that troubled his faith those who have the faith of children have also the troubles of children and this living example before his eyes of what looked like the carelessness of god or worse was a greater offence to my friend's faith than all infidel arguments or the mere knowledge that such things happened on a certain christmas eve my friend had been a long tramp over the hills with a guest who was staying with him for the shooting they were returning through his own property towards evening and were just dropping down from the hill their path lay along the upper edge of an old disused stone quarry whose entrance lay perhaps a hundred yards away from the valley road that led into the village so it was a lonely and unfrequented place the evening was closing in and my friend as he led the way along the path was trying to make out the outlines of stones and bushes on the floor of the quarry which lay perhaps seventy feet below them all at once his eye was caught by the steady glimmer of light somewhere in the dimness beneath and the sound of a voice he guessed at once that there were tramps below and was angry at the thought that they must have wilfully disregarded the notice he had put up about making a fire so close to the wood and he determined to turn them out and if need be to give them shelter for the night in one of his own outhouses So he stopped and explained to his friend which path would take him home, while that he himself intended to make his way down the lip of the quarry to the entrance, and then to go on into its interior, where the tramps had made their camp, and he promised to be at the house five minutes after his friend. So they separated, and he himself soon found his way down a narrow overgrown path that brought him to the opening of the quarry it was a good deal darker here as the hill shadowed it from the west and high trees rose on one side but he was able to stumble along the stony path which led to the interior though it grew darker still as he went presently he turned the corner of a tall boulder and emerged into the kind of semi that formed the heart of the quarry before him about a third way up the slope burned the glimmer of light he had noticed from above but even as he saw it it went out my friend stood in the path and called out explaining who he was not threatening at all but offering if it was anyone who wanted shelter to provide it for the night there was no answer only the sound of scuffling in the dimness in front and then the confused sound of footsteps scrambling my friend ran forward calling and made out presently an oddly shaped thing scrambling over the silt and stone towards a shoulder of rock that stood out against the sky on his left i think he said he tried to follow but it was too dark and after he had stumbled once or twice he gave up the pursuit in a moment more the climbing figure stood out clear against the sky for an instant and then disappeared and the squire saw with a shock of disgust the mule-like head and tangled hair rising from the high shoulders of the village idiot and his hands dangling on each side of him and he heard a high screaming neighing but at least he thought to himself he would go and see what the boy had been doing He made his way up the slope of silted gravel and mud that lay against the face of the rock, and at last reached a little platform, apparently stamped and cut out at the top of the scree, just where it touched the quarry side. It was too dark for him to distinguish anything clearly, so he struck a match and held it in the still sheltered air while he looked about him, and this is what he saw— there was a short halter with a kind of rude headstall fastened to a rusty iron staple driven into the rock. There was a little pile of cut grass below it. There was a kind of mud trough constructed against the stone, with a little straw sprinkled in it and holly berries and leaves in front of it. But this showed signs of having been hastily trampled down, though parts of it survived there were marks of hobnailed boots in it here and there so much my friend had noticed when the match burned his fingers but just before he dropped it he noticed something else which made him open his box and light another match and then he saw the end of a farthing taper sticking out of the ground into which it had been pushed and another crushed into a ball he drew out the first and lighted it and then noticed this last thing quite plainly marked on the soft edge of the mud trough, in a place which the hobnailed boots had not touched, was the mark of a tiny child's naked foot, as if a baby had stood in the trough, or manger, with one foot on the floor and another on the edge. Now, I do not know what you think of this, but I know what my friend thought of it, and what I myself think of it, but before he went home he went first to the cottage where the boy lived and found him as usual tethered in a corner with his grandmother nodding before the fire the boy would do nothing but snort and stamp and the grandmother could only say that ten minutes ago the boy had run in and gone straight to his corner as usual the squire asked whether the boy had been trusted with the child by anyone but the grandmother said it was impossible nor indeed did he ever after hear a word of a child having been missed on that afternoon then before he went home he went to the little church already decorated for the festival and there with the fragrance of the holly and yew in the air about him and the glimmer of a candle near the altar where the church cleaner was sweeping He praised the holy child whose birthnight it was, and who had not disdained to lie in a manger and be adored by the beasts of the stall. The following morning on his way back from church he went to the quarry again with his friend to show him what he had seen. But the manger and the holly berries and crumpled taper were all gone, and there was nothing to see but the iron staple and the platform beaten hard and flat we had reached the avenue of pines by now that led to the house and turned in by the little garden gate the story seems to show the priest said that intellect has not much to do with the knowledge of god and that the things which he hides from the wise and prudent he reveals to babes the traveller i am amazed not that the traveller returns from that bourne, but that he returns so seldom the pilgrim's way on one of these evenings as we sat together after dinner in front of the wide-open fireplace in the central room of the house we began to talk on that old subject the relation of science to faith it is no wonder said the priest if their conclusions appear to differ to shallow minds who think that the last words are being said on both sides because their standpoints are so different The scientific view is that you are not justified in committing yourself one inch ahead of your intellectual evidence. The religious view is that in order to find out anything worth knowing, your faith must always be a little in advance of your evidence. You must advance en echelon. There is the principle of our Lord's promise, act as if it were true, the light will be given. The scientist, on the other hand, says, Do not presume to commit yourself until light is given. The difference between the methods lies, of course, in the fact that religion admits the heart and the whole man to the witness box, while science only admits the head, scarcely even the senses. Yet surely the evidence of experience is on the side of religion. Every really great achievement is inspired by motives of the heart and not of the head by feeling and passion, not by a calculation of probabilities. And so are the mysteries of God unveiled by those who carry them first by assault. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For example, he continued after a moment, the scientific view of haunted houses is that there is no evidence for them, beyond that which may be accounted for by telepathy, a kind of thought-reading yet if you can penetrate that veneer of scientific thought that is so common now you find that by far the larger part of mankind still believes in them practically not one of us really accepts the scientific view as an adequate one have you ever had an experience of that kind yourself i asked well said the priest smiling you are sure you will not laugh at it there is nothing commoner than to think such things a subject for humour and that i cannot bear each such story is sacred to one person at the very least and therefore should be to all reverent people i assured him that i would not treat his story with disrespect well he answered i do not think you will and i will tell you it only happened a very few years ago this is how it began a friend of mine was and is still in charge of a church in kent which i will not name but it is within twenty miles of Canterbury. The district fell into Catholic hands a good many years ago. I received a telegram in this house a day or two before Christmas from my friend saying that he had been suddenly seized with a very bad attack of influenza, which was devastating Kent at that time, and asking me to come down, if possible, at once, and take his place over Christmas.' i had only lately given up active work owing to growing infirmity but it was impossible to resist this appeal so parker packed my things and we went together by the next train i found my friend really ill and quite incapable of doing anything so i assured him that i could manage perfectly and that he need not be anxious on the next day wednesday and christmas eve i went down to the little church to hear confessions it was a beautiful old church, though tiny and full of interesting things. The old altar had been set up again, and there was a rude loft with a staircase leading on to it and An ombre on the north of the sanctuary had been fitted up as a receptacle for the most holy sacrament instead of the old hanging picks. One of the most interesting discoveries made in the church was that of the old confessional. In the lower half of the root screen on the south side, a square hole had been found, filled up with an insertion of oak, but an antiquarian of the Alcuin Club, whom my friend had asked to examine the church, declared that this, without doubt, was the place where in the pre-Reformation times confessions were heard, so it had been restored and put to its ancient use and now on this christmas eve i sat within the chancel in the dim fragrant light while penitents came and knelt outside the screen on the single step and made their confession through the old opening i know this is a great platitude but i never can look at a piece of old furniture without a curious thrill at a thing that has been so much saturated with human emotion but above all that i have ever seen i think that this old confessional moved me through that little opening had come so many thousands of sins great and little weighted with sorrow and back again in divine exchange for those burdens had returned the balm of the saviour's blood behold a door opened in heaven through which that strange commerce of sin and grace may be carried on grace pressed down and running over given into the bosom in exchange for sin o bonum commercium! the priest was silent for a moment his eyes glowing then he went on well christmas day and the three following festivals passed away very happily on the sunday night after service as i came out of the vestry i saw a child waiting she told me when i asked her if she wanted me that her father and others of her family wished to make their confessions on the following evening about six o'clock they had influenza in the house and had not been able to come out before but the father was going to work next day as he was so much better and would come if it pleased me and some of his children to make their confessions in the evening and their communions the following morning monday dawned and i offered the holy sacrifice as usual and spent the morning chiefly with my friend who was now able to sit up and talk a good deal though he was not yet allowed to leave his bed in the afternoon i went for a walk all the morning there had rested a depression on my soul such as i have not often felt it was of a peculiar quality every soul that tries however poorly to serve god knows by experience those heavinesses by which our lord tests and confirms his own but it was not like that an element of terror mingled with it as of impending evil as i started for my walk along the high road this depression deepened there seemed no physical reason for it that i could perceive I was well myself, and the weather was fair, yet air and exercise did not affect it. I turned at last, about half past three o'clock, at a milestone that marked sixteen miles to Canterbury. I rested there for a moment, looking to the southeast, and saw that far on the horizon heavy clouds were gathering, and then I started homewards as i went i heard a far-away boom as of distant guns and i thought at first that there was some sea-fort to the south where artillery practice was being held but presently i noticed that it was too irregular and prolonged for the report of a gun and then it was with a sense of relief that i came to the conclusion that it was a far-away thunderstorm for i felt that the state of the atmosphere might explain away this depression that so troubled me The thunder seemed to come nearer, pealed more loudly three or four times, and ceased. But I felt no relief. When I reached home a little after four, Parker brought me in some tea, and I fell asleep afterwards in a chair before the fire. I was awakened after a troubled and unhappy dream by Parker bringing in my coat and telling me it was time to keep my appointment at the church i could not remember what my dream was but it was sinister and suggestive of evil and with the threads of it still clinging to me i looked at parker with something of fear as he stood silently by my chair holding the coat the church stood only a few steps away for the garden and churchyard adjoined one another As I went down, carrying the lantern that Parker had lighted for me, I remember hearing, far away to the south, beyond the village, the beat of a horse's hoofs. The horse seemed to be in a gallop, but presently the noise died away behind a ridge. When I entered the church, I found that the sacristan had lighted a candle or two, as I had asked him, and I could just make out the kneeling figures of three or four people in the north aisle." when i was ready i took my seat in the chair set beyond the screen at the place i have described and then one by one the labourer and his children came up and made their confessions i remember feeling again as on christmas eve the strange charm of this old place of penitence so redolent of god and man each in his tenderest character of saviour and penitent with the red light burning like a luminous flower in the dark before me to remind me how god was indeed tabernacling with men and was their god now i do not know how long i had been there when again i heard the beat of a horse's hoofs but this time in the village just below the churchyard then again there fell a sudden silence then presently a gust of wind flung the door wide and the candles began to gutter and flare in the draught one of the girls went and closed the door presently the boy who was kneeling by me at that time finished his confession received absolution and went down to the church and i waited for the next not knowing how many there were after waiting a minute or two i turned in my seat and was about to get up thinking there was no one else when a voice whispered sharply through the hole a single sentence. I could not catch the words, but I suppose they were the usual formula for asking a blessing. So I gave the blessing and waited, a little astonished at not having heard the penitent come up. And then the voice began again. The priest stopped a moment and looked round, and I could see that he was trembling a little. "'Would you rather not go on?' I said. "'I think it disturbs you to tell me.' no no he said it is all right but it was very dreadful very dreadful well the voice began again in a loud quick whisper but the odd thing was that i could hardly understand a word there were just phrases here and there like the name of god and of our lady that i could catch then there were a few old french words that i knew Roy came over and over again Just at first I thought it must be some extreme form of dialect unknown to me. Then I thought it must be a very old man who was deaf, because when I tried, after a few sentences, to explain that I could not understand, the penitent paid no attention, but whispered on quickly, without a pause. Presently I could perceive that he was in a terrible state of mind. The voice broke and sobbed, and then almost cried out, but still in this loud whisper then on the other side of the screen i could hear fingers working and moving uneasily as if entreating admittance at some barred door then at last there was silence for a moment and then plainly some closing formula was repeated which gradually grew lower and ceased then as i rose meaning to come round and explain that i had not been able to hear a loud moan or two came from the penitent i stood up quickly and looked through the upper part of the screen and there was no one there i can give you no idea of what a shock that was to me I stood there, glaring, I suppose, through the screen down at the empty step for a moment or two, and perhaps I said something aloud, for I heard a voice from the end of the church. Did you call, sir? And there stood the sacristan, with his keys and lantern, ready to lock up. I still stood without answering for a moment, and then I spoke, my voice sounded oddly in my ears. "'Is there anyone else, Williams? Are they all gone? Or something like that?' Williams lifted his lantern and looked round the dusky church. "'No, sir, there is no one.' I crossed the chancel to go to the vestry, but as I was half-way, suddenly again in the quiet village there broke out the desperate gallop of a horse. "'There! There!' I cried. "'Do you hear that?' Williams came up the church towards me. "'Are you ill, sir?' he said. "'Shall I fetch your servant?' I made an effort and told him it was nothing, but he insisted on seeing me home. I did not like to ask him whether he had heard the gallop of the horse, for after all I thought perhaps there was no connection between that and the voice that whispered. I felt very much shaken and disturbed, and after dinner, which I took alone of course, I thought I would go to bed very soon. On my way up, however, I looked into my friend's room for a few minutes. He seemed very bright and eager to talk, and I stayed very much longer than I had intended. I said nothing of what had happened in the church, but listened to him while he talked about the village and the neighborhood. Finally, as I was on the point of bidding him good-night, he said something like this: well i mustn't keep you but i've been thinking while you've been in church of an old story that is told by antiquarians about this place they say that one of st thomas a becket's murderers came here on the very evening of the murder it is his day to-day you know and that is what put me in mind of it i suppose while my friend said this my old heart began to beat furiously, but with a strong effort of self-control I told him I should like to hear the story. "'Oh, well, there's nothing much to tell,' said my friend, and they don't know who it's supposed to have been, but it is said to have been either one of the four knights or one of the men-at-arms. "'But how did he come here?' I asked, and what for?' oh he supposed to have been in terror for his soul and that he rushed here to get absolution which of course was impossible but tell me i said did he come here alone or how well you know after the murder they ransacked the archbishop's house and stables and it is said that this man got one of the fastest horses and rode like a madman not knowing where he was going and that he dashed into the village and into the church where the priest was and then afterwards mounted again and rode off the priest too is buried in the chancel somewhere i believe you see it's a very vague and improbable story at the gatehouse at malling too, you know, they say that one of the knights slept there the night after the murder. I said nothing more, but I suppose I looked strange, because my friend began to look at me with some anxiety, and then ordered me off to bed. So I took my candle and went. Now, said the priest, turning to me, that is the story. I need not say that I have thought about it a great deal ever since, and there are only two theories which appear to me creditable and to others which would no doubt be suggested which appear to me incredible first you may say that i was obviously unwell my previous depression and dreaming showed that and therefore that i dreamt the whole thing if you wish to think that well you must think it secondly you may say with the psychical research society that the whole thing was transmitted from my friend's brain to mine that his was in an energetic and mine in a passive state or something of the kind these two theories would be called scientific which term means that they are not a hair's-breadth in advance of the facts with which the intellect a poor instrument at the best is capable of dealing and these two scientific theories create in their turn a new brood of insoluble difficulties. Or you may take your stand upon the spiritual world, and use the faculties which God has given you for dealing with it, and then you will no longer be helplessly puzzled, and your intellect will no longer overstrain itself at a task for which it was never made, and you may say, I think, that you prefer one of two theories first that human emotion has a power of influencing or saturating inanimate nature of course this is only the old familiar sacramental principle of all creation the expressions of your face for instance caused by the shifting of the chemical particles of which it is composed vary with your varying emotions thus we might say that the violent passions of hatred anger terror remorse and of this poor murderer seven hundred years ago combined to make a potent spiritual fluid that bit so deep into the very place where it was all poured out that under certain circumstances it is reproduced a phonograph for example is a very coarse parallel in which the vibrations of sound translate themselves first into terms of wax and then re-emerge again as vibrations when certain conditions are fulfilled or secondly you may be old-fashioned and simple and say that by some law vast and inexorable beyond our perception the personal spirit of the very man is chained to the place and forced to expiate his sin again and again year by year by attempting to express his grief and to seek forgiveness without the possibility of receiving it of course we do not know who he was whether one of the knights, who afterwards did receive absolution, which possibly was not ratified by God, or one of the men-at-arms, who assisted, and who, as an anonymous chronicle says, sine confessione et viatico subito rapti sunt. There is nothing materialistic, I think, in believing that spiritual beings may be bound to express themselves within limits of time and space, and that inanimate nature as well as animate may be the vehicles of the unseen arguments against such possibilities have surely once for all been silenced for christians at any rate by the incarnation and the sacramental system of which the whole principle is that the infinite and eternal did once and does still express itself under forms of inanimate nature in terms of time and space with regard to another point Perhaps I need not remind you that a thunderstorm broke over Canterbury on the day and hour of the actual murder of the archbishop. End of part six.